welcome to This Week in the History of Psychology for September 25th to October 1st. This is your host, Christopher Green of York University in Toronto, Canada. In this episode, we'll first take a brief look at some of the most important events that happened during This Week in Psychology's past. Then we'll have our feature interview with Professor Michael Sokol about James McKean Cattell, the professor who was fired from Columbia University for opposing World War I. Or was he? Finally, we'll celebrate the birthdays of some important psychologists. All this and more on this installment of This Week in the History of Psychology. September 25th. In 1970, the first manual for the Statistical Package for the Social Sciences, or SPSS, was published. For September 27th, in 1920, the first client was seen at the Tavistock Clinic in London. The Tavistock was one of the first outpatient clinics in Great Britain to provide psychoanalytic therapy for indigent clients. For September 28th, in 1895, Carl Pearson sent his paper, Regression, Heredity, and Panmixia, to the Royal Society. This article, along with the 1897 paper, On the Probable Errors of Frequency Constants and on the Influence of Random Selection on Variation and Correlation, provided a basic formula for the correlation coefficient. Also on September 28, in 1944, Leo Kanner's article, Early Childhood Autism, was published in the Journal of Pediatrics. It was the first article on the topic, and Kanner coined the term autism. And also for September 28, in 1945, the Ladies' Home Journal published an article about the baby tender built by B.F. Skinner to serve as an environmentally controlled crib for his daughter, Debbie. The article, titled Baby in a Box, created widespread misunderstanding and persistent false rumors of child abuse and maladjustment. For September 29th, in 1884, James McKean Cattell brought a Remington Model 4 typewriter to Leipzig. Wilhelm Wundt, fascinated, obtained one for himself and increased his already prodigious scholarly output. For September 30th, in 1887, the American Journal of Psychology was first published. The publisher and editor was Granville Stanley Hall. And for October 1st, in 1875, Wilhelm Wundt joined the faculty of the University of Leipzig. And also for October 1st, in 1890, Mary Whitten Calkins overcame Harvard University's prohibition against female students and was allowed to enroll in a physiological psychology class taught by William James and a class on Hegel taught by Josiah Royce. Calkins later became president of the American Psychological Association in 1905.
On October 1, 1917, James McKean Cattell, a longtime Columbia University professor, a former president of the American Psychological Association, and a co-founder of the journal Psychological Review, was dismissed from his academic position, ostensibly for having publicly questioned the conscription of American men into the military to fight in World War I. Although not well known today, criticism of the United States government's policies with respect to the war had been made effectively illegal by President Woodrow Wilson's Espionage Act, passed in June 1917, and the President of Columbia took full advantage of this to justify Cattell's dismissal. But this was not Cattell's first run-in with the Columbia administration, and his comments about the war may have been a mere pretext to get rid of Cattell. Here to talk to us today about Cattell's dismissal is Professor Michael Sokol, emeritus of the Worcester Polytechnic Institute in Massachusetts, and author of the book An Education in Psychology, James McKean Cattell's Journal and Letters from Germany and England, 1880 to 1888, published by MIT Press in 1981. Professor Sokol, perhaps we could start with your talking a little bit about who James McKean Cattell was. What had his main accomplishments been up to the, t the point at which uh, Columbia dismissed him? Uh, Cattell earned a Ph.D. from Wilhelm Wundt in 1886. Apparently, it was the, he was the first American student to earn a Ph.D. with Wundt for a, an experimental dissertation as opposed to a philosophical one. Cattell's experiments with Wundt focused on reaction time, and unlike most of Wundt's students, he did not make any use of the Innervarnehmung, which has been falsely translated as introspection. Hmm. Instead, Cattell focused on the behavior of the subject in the experiment and timed it. He does thus developed a great reputation for experimental precision. Uh, perhaps more importantly, Cattell then spent two years in England, where he worked very informally with Francis Galton, Charles Darwin's cousin, who was very interested in variation, that is, the differences that make uh, natural selection possible. And with Galton's interest in mind, Cattell developed various techniques to measure psychological differences between individuals. Mm -hmm. In other words, again, the variations that make natural selection possible. He returned to the States in 1889 to a professorship at the University of Pennsylvania, where in 1890 he sets forth a program of what he calls mental test. He's one of the first, perhaps the first, to use that term, going to Columbia in 1891, where he established a significant program of mental tests, testing every freshman class in Columbia for quite a number of years. He has no overarching functional view of what the tests mean, but he's, uh, he's very proud of the fact that his tests produce quantitative measurements. However, in 1901, one of his students shows that there's no correlation between the results of any of Cattell's tests and any, uh, anything else of value. In other words, Cattell's tests are shown by 1901 to be essentially useless. Cattell then more or less abandons the laboratory for all sorts of library research projects. 
Much more importantly, however, Cattell, as early as 1894, becomes an editor of scientific publications. 1894, he founds the Psychological Review with James Mark Baldwin. 1895, he takes over as sole editor of the failing scientific periodical, The Weekly Science. 1900, Cattell takes over Popular Science Monthly, a journal more or less equivalent to today's Scientific American. And 1907, takes over The American Naturalist, which is primarily a journal supporting Mendelian genetics. Okay, so but he uh, but it is true that his uh, his activities in if you like science administration or, or in institutional administration connected with science was as important as his his actual scientific uh, research. Would you say Probably that? Probably more so. Right. Uh, certainly, it had a longer lasting impact. However, in 1901, Cattell is the first psychologist elected to the U.S. National Academy of Sciences. He's elected because of his laboratory successes. I did not mention some of the experiments he did, at the, uh, psychophysical experiments he did at the University of Pennsylvania, but these were quite impressive at the time and led the Academy to elect him. Well, now, what about the United States at this time, uh, around 1917? What's going on in the U.S. that uh, that leads up to the situation with Cattell and, and Columbia? Uh, the war begins the summer of 1914 in Europe. Horrible war. You, uh, If you've done any historical reading or any of your history courses, you will know just how bad it was, just how much England, Britain is suffering just how easy it is for many people to blame Germany, largely because of the way in which Germany invaded, uh, invaded France through Belgium, and Belgium was supposed to be a neutral country. Mm-hmm. Uh, many Americans, the uh, people in the U.S., uh, support the nation whose ethnic background they reflect. German-Americans, of course, support Germany's war aims, most Anglo-Saxons in the state support British war aims. Gradually, as German uh, uh, attacks on the Lusitania, as German, he declares undeclared war, uh, unrestricted submarine warfare, mm-hmm. the most public opinion in the U.S. shifts more and more and more towards supporting Britain and France, the Allies, in the war against Germany and Austria. Mm-hmm. In 1916, Woodrow Wilson is re-elected in the campaign, uh, with the campaign slogan, as president, he kept us out of war. He's inaugurated in his second term as president of the U.S. in March 4th, 1917, and in April 1917, he urges the U.S. Congress to declare war on Germany which the U.S. Congress does. Mm-hmm. Jumping back a bit, Cattell, from the summer of 1914, is very, very, very critical of the war, both Germany's frames and Britain and France's participation in the war. It's much too strong to call him a pacifist, but he believes the war is having a negative impact on the positive value of natural selection. He believes the war is weeding out the best and the brightest, and that's exactly what he does not want to see happen. 
um, as uh, he published various anti-war articles through his journals throughout 1914, 15, 16, into 17, attacking both British and German behavior during the war. And most of his colleagues at Columbia are willing to tolerate that work. In April 1917, when the war begins, when the U.S. enters the war, President of Columbia, Nicholas Murray Butler, declares we have to come behind the U.S. in its war aid. Cattell had seven children. Cattell and his wife had seven children, four sons, three daughters. The eldest son, uh, once war is declared, immediately enlists, and he's, he's a graduate student at Harvard in physiology, and he's assigned to an ambulance corps serving in France. Cattell, though he opposes the war, is very proud of his son for this action. Cattell's uh, second son, immediately, once war is declared, opposes conscription, uh, passes out literature calling for uh, the abolition of conscription, uh, conscription, the abolition of the draft. He's arrested, he's tried, he's convicted. Uh, uh, Cattell tries to prevent his conviction. Cattell cannot. So what leads right up to Cattell's firing, then? What are the, the, his, the actions that, that precipitate his firing? Let's go, go back to the type of man Cattell was. Mm-hmm. A recent book, The Metaphysical Club, by Louis Menand, uh, writes about American intellectual history from about, let's say, 1870 to 1920. And in his acknowledgments, he, he writes how great it was to make acquaintance with so many distinguished people, less distinguished people. And he speaks admirably of uh, William James and even Charles Saunders Peirce, who was uh, an oddball. But he also mentions then the obnoxious James McKean Cattell. That is perhaps an understatement. Cattell was born in 1860 in eastern Pennsylvania, not a big town but he was born to the richest family in the town. As such, he grew used to being the center of attention. More than that, he went to the college of which his father was president, Lafayette College. And it wasn't a question that his professors didn't make him work. Of course they did. But he clearly was uh, something special in their eyes. Uh, his grandfather's maternal grandfather, James McKean, endowed the large building on campus, McKean Hall. And James McKean Cattell takes classes from his professors in McKean Hall. Uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald, an American novelist, in his wonderful short story, The Rich Boy, sets up a character called Anson Hunter, who grows uh, the rich boy who grows used to the attention of being the center of existence, the attention of his friends' parents when he comes to play with them. And uh, Fitzgerald makes the point that, like anybody raised in any setting, he grew used to that. Cattell was like that. Cattell was used to being the center of attention and used to having people defer to him. Meanwhile, 21st century psychologists use the dsm four have looked at Cattell's behavior and have come up with a diagnosis of narcissistic personality disorder. And that's perfectly accurate. 
Mm. And I, I, I like the fact that psychologists and literary scholars come to the same view of Cattell. In other words, Cattell at Columbia is expecting that his view on everything will be used to determine the way in which everything is done at the university. He's not willing to agree to disagree. He's not willing to defer to anybody. And he makes all sorts of enemies. He is a highly unpleasant individual. When somebody disagrees with him, he typically circulates that person's statement and attacks that person. Cattell, in 1913, the university tries to retire Cattell. His colleagues uh, come around him saying, no, 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 you can't retire him. He is a distinguished scholar. And even though they dislike him, they don't want the university to, in effect, get rid of one of their colleagues. Uh, over the next four years, through 1917, Cattell gets more and more and more unpleasant. In 1917, a committee on the status of teaching in the university issues a defense of Cattell. However, he continues over the next few months, so that by the summer of 1917, the faculty committee, not the administration, not the president, not the deans, but a faculty committee votes that the usefulness of Professor Cattell to the university has ended, and he should be dismissed from his professorship. Okay, this is long before uh, uh, he does anything with the war, uh, other than general attacks. In August 1917, he writes a letter to members of Congress, every member of Congress, on letterhead, which is personal letterhead, but which has Columbia University as its return address, arguing that conscription, the draft, should be modified, arguing that people who are drafted should not be forced to fight overseas in Europe. As a result, Many congressmen uh, write to the president of Columbia saying, you have a traitor on the faculty, time to get rid of him. The president of Columbia, Nicholas Murray Butler, who had long found Cattell to be obnoxious, a thorn in the side, thus had congressional pressure to fire Cattell. And more than that, he had faculty support for firing Cattell. And sometime late September, early October 1917, Cattell is fired from Columbia. Mm -hmm. The main cause was not his opposition to conscription policy, not any anti-war statements, but because of the way in which he made life unpleasant for most of his Columbia colleagues. Well, now, Cattell is often portrayed historically as being uh, something of a martyr to the cause of academic freedom, but, but as you described it, it's, it's a much more complicated situation than that, isn't it? Uh, let's give a little bit more specifics than I did. Uh, the Committee on the uh, Status of Teaching in the University was chaired by an economist, Ernest Seligman, and he uh, pushed to establish the committee to protect professors, to make sure that Nicholas Murray Butler, the president of the university, would not tell them what to do, would not infringe upon, uh, upon their academic freedom. And as such, the committee played significant roles in defending the academic freedom of several Columbia professors. Cattell, meanwhile, though Seligman is playing this role, Cattell personally attacks Seligman as a tool of the president, 
and he uh, circulates various of Seligman's statements, essentially distorting what Seligman says, essentially offering ad hominem attacks to a man who everybody sees as a defender of academic freedom. Throughout this uh, episode, John Dewey, one of Cattell's friends, a man who Cattell brought to Columbia in 1904, is trying to defend Cattell. He's a member of this Committee on the Status of Teaching in the University, and in the early years of the committee, he defends Cattell. Finally, by I think it's March or April or May 1917, Dewey joins with the uh, rest of the members of the committee in voting that Cattell, and this is someone Dewey had known since 1882 as a grad student at Johns Hopkins, voting that Cattell should be dismissed. It's not a question of academic freedom. To quote uh, uh, one of the deans at Columbia, trying to defend academic freedom with Cattell is like trying to argue against capital punishment in the case of an axe murderer. So he was a deeply unpopular person with uh, both his colleagues and his uh, his institutional superiors, the administration then. Oh, oh yeah. It's quite clear. So, uh, yes, other people have claimed he was a martyr to academic freedom, but the AAUP, the American Association of University Professors, studied the case, argued that, uh, well, it was a faculty committee that voted to dismiss him. Hmm. Maybe uh, things should have been done a bit more smoothly, but they did not defend Cattell at all. So what happened to Cattell after he left Columbia? Um, his immediate response was to go into a terrific uh, state of depression, uh, gets out of it within a week, gets involved in New York City politics, details unimportant. Within a year or so, he sues Columbia for liable, claiming that by uh, uh, essentially that they charged him with being a traitor and to call somebody a traitor in the midst of war is liable. Cattell finally settled the case in 1921 out of court, which led to a, a significant payment on his, uh, he was able to receive a significant payment, and he used the money to found the Psychological Corporation, hmm. which um, today is a major publisher of psychological tests. I don't want to go through what it first did under Cattell's leadership. Basically, he doesn't know how to apply psychology, and it's not until 1926 when he's essentially kicked out of the presidency, kicked upstairs to be chairman of the board, and real, uh, real industrial psychologists are brought in that the corporation uh, does anything uh, worth noting. He continues editing his journals, and he, they're significant. He's respected as an editor. And he edits science, for example, until the day he dies in January 1944. Really? Right. Well, thank you very much. He's certainly a fascinating character. We've been speaking to Professor Michael Sokol, emeritus of the Worcester Polytechnic Institute in Massachusetts, about the dismissal of James McKean Cattell from his professorship at Columbia University in 1917. Professor Sokol is the author of An Education in Psychology, James McKean Cattell's Journals and Letters from Germany and England, 1880 to 1888, published by MIT in 1981.
If you would like to know more about Cattell's life, you can also look at Professor Sokol's chapter, James McKean Cattell, Achievement and Alienation, in Volume 6 of the Portraits of Pioneers in Psychology series, edited by Donald A. Dewsbury, Ludy T. Benjamin Jr., and Michael Wertheimer. That was published in 2006 by the American Psychological Association and Lawrence Erlbaum Associates. And now it's time for birthdays. For September 25th, in 1863, Edmund Delabar was born. Delabar was a student of William James's and founded the Psychology Laboratory at Brown University in 1892. For September 26th, in 1849, Ivan P. Pavlov was born. Pavlov brought the conditional reflex to the attention of the scientific community. He identified its functional elements and extensively studied its characteristics. Pavlov won the Nobel Prize in 1904 for his work in digestion. And also on September 26th, in 1865, George Stratton was born. Stratton is remembered primarily for the first studies of the effects of prolonged inversion of the visual field, finding that he readily adapted to this distortion and later suffered disorientation when his inverting lenses were removed. He also studied aesthetics and social behavior and was president of the American Psychological Association in 1908. For September 27th, in 1913, Albert Ellis was born. Ellis has devised and promoted rational emotive therapy, a cognitive behavioral approach to psychotherapy that is based on exposing and confronting the irrational beliefs of the client. And for October 1st, in 1884, David Katz was born. Nativistic themes were prominent in Katz's studies of color perception and lent support to early Gestalt theories. He also conducted phenomenological studies of touch and published a book on child psychology that was based on conversations with children. And also for October 1st, in 1915, Jerome Bruner was born. Bruner has been a pivotal figure in modern cognitive psychology. His interests have been in cognitive development, new look, studies in perception, educational reform, and social opinion formation and change. And he was president of the American Psychological Association in 1965. that's it for this episode of This Week in the History of Psychology. We would love to hear your comments on the show. You can email us at twithop, that's the initials of This Week in the History of Psychology, T-W-I-T-H-O-P, at yorku.ca. That's Y-O-R-K-U dot C-A. We would like to thank York University for hosting the program, as well as Michael Guimar for his technical assistance, and especially Warren Street and the American Psychological Association for their website, Today in the History of Psychology, which we use for research and from which we sometimes quote directly. This Week in the History of Psychology is the sole property of Christopher Green. The opinions expressed on This Week in the History of Psychology are not necessarily those of Christopher Green or of York University. 